You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith, happy Monday. How are you doing? Happy Monday. I'm very good. How are you? I am great. I had a very relaxed weekend, which was much needed. Had to switch off from all that is happening uh, in Ukraine, uh, particularly. But looking forward to some of the questions coming through from you as our naked scientist. So let's uh, listen to Peter in Stanton. Hi, Peter. Hi, hi. And Chris, Chris, the last time I was listening to you, you said something encouraging. You said, uh, as, as, um, as we are born, we, we, we get genes from both our parents, uh, 50% from the father and 50% from the mother. And hopefully we get the best from both, from, from, from both of them. But now in the case of um, a black person and a white person having a child, why does the child become something in between and not inherit either a white gene from the father and a black gene from the mother? Or does it mean that these genes somehow they can mix and then come up with something in between. Mm. Right, okay. The answer is that there's not one single gene that says black or white. Because if you look at the physique, the anatomy of a white person, you do the same for a black person, you'll see there's quite a lot of differences in terms of how tall we are, certain elements of facial structure, tooth structure. There are things which are very, very different between the two, apart from just the colour. But when you inherit genes your genes don't all cluster together and go, right, I'm a black gene or I'm a white gene. And so all of the characteristics that go with black people and white people are independently inherited. The way it works is that if you've got a parent, let's say, let's take a mum, and she's got 23 pairs of chromosomes in all of her cells, bar a few exceptions. When she makes her eggs, which actually happened when she was a developing baby inside her own mum, which boggles your mind a bit because you think if you look at a pregnant lady, she's there, she's got a baby inside her, and therefore all of her grandchildren, potentially genetically, are inside there as well, which is a bit like a Russian doll, isn't it? But when those eggs are made, the process that gives rise to them is called meiosis. This is a form of cell division where rather than just copy all of the genetic material and put all of it into the new cells... There's a process by which half of it gets removed and thrown away. So the egg contains a random selection of the chromosomes, one of each that were in the mum. So you have two copies of chromosome number one, let's say, one from your dad, one from your mum. When it's making an egg or a sperm, one of those two will be randomly selected, the one from mum or the one from dad, but not necessarily all dads or all mums. Chromosome number two, the same independent selection happens. And so you end up with an egg cell or, in the case of a man, a sperm cell that contains just one copy of each chromosome. But it might be one copy from dad of one of them, one copy from mum of another, or all of mum's copies from another one. It's totally random. It's called independent assortment. And this means because the genes that give us our characteristics are spread right across our full genome, all 23 pairs of chromosomes, because they're all being independently assorted and reassorted in this way, and then when that egg is fertilized, you get the genes from uh, the other parent brought to bear, and they mix together to make, again, 23 pairs of chromosomes, you end up with all of the characteristics being mixed up. So you'll get people that do have some of the genes, for instance, for enhanced skin pigmentation. So you'll have someone who looks a bit darker, but not as dark as someone 
who's got two black parents, for example, but they may have some of the other anatomical characteristics that they inherit from their white parent and some of the other anatomical characteristics they inherit from their black parent. And again, it's not as simple as saying you've got that gene, therefore you will look like this because different genes have a different combination or contribution to the ultimate appearance of a person. And both are switched on and both have an impact and an input on to how you look. So it's not as simple as just a gene on or a gene off. And this is why, I mean, one of my daughter's friends in her school at class, um, class at school had one parent who's darker skinned, one parent who's lighter skinned, and they have two non-identical twin daughters. So they're born at the same time, but from two different eggs, which is how you get non-identical twins. One is much darker than the other. The other one's very much whiter. And so it just goes to show that independent assortment of these chromosomes you get very different characteristics being inherited like this so isn't that wonderful it's, it means that basically everybody on earth unless you are an identical twin is genetically distinct and there's no other person like you unless you've developed cloning of course i actually saw something i'm so glad that peter asked this question um where a set of identical twins married a set of identical twins and they had children at the same time and they were commenting they technically the first cousins are actually brother and sister because the yep. genetic. Can you explain that to us? Because I was like, I need it to really ask Chris. It boggles your mind, doesn't it? Um, yes. If you if you are identical as a twin, then you have um, the same genetic makeup as your twin, your brother or sister, and this means when you make sperms and eggs, you are putting the same potential genes into those sperms and eggs. Now they're not going to be the same in terms of, uh, of every sperm's the same between the two couples. But the genetic material you're using to make your sperms and eggs is the same. So therefore, the sperm you get from your brother or sister, who's your, uh, the, from your brother if they're your two boys, eggs if it's two girls, they will be genetically indistinguishable. So you couldn't actually tell if uh, one or the other had fathered or been the mother to a child just on genetic terms if they were twins because the contribution they would be making genetically to their offspring is the same but if you marry a an identical pair if you've got that pair of twins marrying another identical pair of twins the other identical twins are going to have the same situation and because each will give 50 percent of their genes to their offspring that means that the child's got 50 percent of each parent well because you can't tell the difference between the first pair of twins genetically and you can't tell the difference between the second pair of twins therefore the children that are born are going to be 50 percent the same as each of their parents but that also means they're 50 percent the same as the other parents yep. from the other set of twins aren't they so yes in, in that respect they are almost as though they're brother and sister rather than cousins it sounds like a tlc dream come true <laughs> that reality <laughs> show all right we've got uh mule baloa from phosphorus hi good afternoon Yes, go ahead. Uh, my question is simple. Do birds have ears? Mm, do birds have Bird, ears? Birds do have ears, yeah. And they have very good senses of hearing. And the evidence for that is birds make songs and they call and they squeal. Or in the case of owls, they hoot. And if they didn't have ears and couldn't hear those sounds, they probably wouldn't make them. They use them to attract mates. They use them to alert each other to danger. And they also use them to communicate with their chicks. There's good evidence that parents sing songs to their unborn chicks inside the eggs. And this does things to the physiology of those offspring. There was research published from Australia a few years back where they showed that when the parent is experiencing very high temperatures as the egg is growing, 
the parent can sing a different song or make certain sounds that the chick inside the egg responds to and it changes its development accordingly to cope with the more seriously uh, threatening conditions it will encounter when it comes out from its egg. So song is very important and you need ears to be able to interpret those sounds. People have actually done quite a lot of work on decoding how bird hearing works and they they actually have this quite clever system it's for directional hearing. So if you're an owl, for example, and you're flying around looking for prey, you have very good vision, but obviously that's not the only way of finding where something is. You can also listen to the sounds coming in that the object you're after is making. And the owls have a system where they put sound in from one ear, sound in from another ear, and the two overlap inside the nervous system, comparing their relative strengths with each other. And this enables the owl to very accurately gauge where the sound is coming from. And it can add that information to what's coming in from its enormous eyes. And this is how they so unerringly swoop down on even very small prey, even when it's very dark. Is that kind of like stereo? We all listen in stereo, and you may not realise it, but try, just turn off one of your ears. Very hard to do, because you also have what's called bone conduction. So even if you stick your finger in your ear, you will uh, still have conduction of vibrations through the bones of your head, so you still get input. But people who've gone deaf in one ear will tell you it's actually very disorientating, because we don't realise that we're doing this. It's a bit like the kind of Joni Mitchell song, where you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You don't realize how much you use directional hearing in order to work out who's speaking to you which direction to turn to listen to somebody you miss whole halves of conversation that are coming in from the side that you're deaf to and you don't know where a sound came from so you don't know which way to look and so, that can be dangerous when you're crossing a road that kind of thing so mm. we do this all the time we use the the sound arriving at one ear at a slightly different timing to our other ear and we compare the time of arrival for the two, and this is all happening automatically inside your nervous system, so to know which way to turn, which way to look, or which way to duck if a, a sound so says there's a, something falling on you, and you know where to look. And we all do this automatically from the day we're born. So in terms of if a person, you know, starts to go blind at some point and their other senses improve, is it that their other senses improve or just that the loss of one sense means they can now focus on the four others? Uh, okay, there's two ways of looking at this. If you have always had those senses and then you lose one of them, you use the example of a person who loses their sight, we're a very adaptive species and we're very good at learning. And so we accommodate, we adjust and we compensate very effectively. And so what will happen is you shift the emphasis onto using your other senses and you learn to pick up on other details which you perhaps didn't notice so much before because you had this dominant sense of seeing. Mm. Seeing is very, very important to us as humans because, and the evidence for that is, if you look at how much of our brain matter we devote to decoding what's coming down our optic nerves, in other words, what we're looking at, about a third of our brain is devoted to decoding vision. It's a really, really neurologically hungry sense. But if you start to lose that, the trumping effect it has on your other senses diminishes and so other senses can take more priority in your attention and you turn you attend to them more but you won't necessarily strengthen those senses that much but if you are born without one of those senses people born blind for example researchers have been studying people in that position where they don't have the stimulus to their brains seeing areas that the eyes would normally provide and so that neurological territory can be 
begin to contribute to processing of other senses. And I've talked to researchers who have done work on people who were born blind, and they find that the seeing parts of the brain actually start to make contributions to decoding things like rhythm of speech and sound. So they can find that there are areas of the, of the cortex which are doing jobs concerned with other senses. So I think it matters to whom you address that question, whether it's someone who is born blind or someone who's gone blind. Mm-hmm. All right, a voice note that's come through. Zela, behind the mic, Rilewogile and Dr. Chris in front of the mic. This is Tabo from Pretoria. Just want to quickly find out what informed the usage of a right hand and the usage of a left hand. Does it have anything to do with where the heart is positioned or or what's happening? Like, why do we people use right hand, so many of us, and some few use left hand? What is happening there? Thank you. I absolutely love this question because in my parenting class over the weekend, this is the thing we're addressing is when do you see when your child is left or right-handed? Well, I did the experiment on my daughter because when she was in her high chair learning to feed herself, I used to notice that she kept picking up her spoon with her left hand. Mm. And I thought, now, is this just habitual or is there something that actually she really wants to do that? Because... My dad was left-handed, my granddad was left-handed, I'm right-handed, my, daughter, my, my wife is right-handed, but my daughter's left-handed. So I used to swap the spoon round and see what happened. And very quickly it was obvious that she would prefer to use her left hand all the time. And she is now grown up to be left-handed or growing up to be left-handed. So now is that, uh, is that a modern phenomenon that we've got right and left-handedness? Or is this something we can trace back in history? Well, that seems like a really hard question to answer because you think, well, well, back in history, what hand did people use? We, we don't have very much documentation on that because we want to know about our evolutionary origins and there's not the same clues that we have these days with people writing things down and documenting things, for example. Or is there? Because about 20 years ago, this study appeared from researchers at the University of Montpellier in France and they had the insight to look at cave paintings because some of the paintings that people painted were not of animals or other scenes. They painted their own hands, using their hands as stencils. So they would use a blowpipe to blow pigment onto a hand held onto the wall of a cave or a piece of rock, and the hand would produce an outline of a hand. Now, if you do the experiment with, say, school children, and you say to them, I want you to make a handprint on the wall, we're going to give you a blowpipe with some paint, and you just put your hand on the wall and blow paint at the wall. You don't tell them which hand to use, you just say, go and do that. You will find that uh, you get a certain proportion of the hands are right-handed, and a certain proportion are left-handed. This is with modern individuals where 90% of the population are right-handed. If you then go and look at these cave paintings, you will find the same proportion of the paintings in made by people tens of thousands of years ago are of right hands versus left hands compared with the school children of today. In other words, there was probably the same hand dominance in our early ancestors in the Stone Age who were living in caves and doing rudimentary paintings as you see today. So in other words, this is a heritable trait. It's something which has been strongly selected in humans. We don't know why. of the population favour their right hand. In other words, while the left side of the brain is dominant in 90% of the population, we think it has something to do with language because the language is also processed through the left side of the brain. 
and the motor system and the language system are very tightly knitted together because a lot of language is a lot of motor performance, of course. But the human body is very much an asymmetric thing. As the as Tabo says, our hearts are on the left, your liver's on the right, your mm. spleen's on the left. All that kind of asymmetry is there in 99% of the population and it's born into us. It's actually engineered as we're a tiny developing embryo, just a collection of cells we already have, a left and a right, as we're developing inside our mums. And so there's something very fundamental going on. We understand some of the nuts and bolts of this, but why the nervous system wires itself up that way, A, it's not a new trait, B, we don't know the genes behind it because people have looked really hard and they can't find a genetic link that says, if you have this combination of genes, you will be left-handed. They've tried and they can't find it, so we don't know how it works, but we do know that for tens of thousands of years, 90% of the population have been right-handed, about 10% are left-handed. All right, uh, let's go to Brian in the East Rand. Hi, Brian. Uh, good day, Lebo. How's it? Uh, I've got a question for the naked scientist. It might be a bit of a silly one, right? But uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, if someone is to get a blood transfusion, right, a blood transfusion, does that mean they now carry components of the DNA from the donor? Hi, Brian. It's not a daft question at all. The answer is that when you put the blood cells in, if you put in cells that contain DNA, white blood cells, there will be some DNA from the donor in there. If you put in red blood cells exclusively, which we often do leukodeplete or remove the white blood cells from a blood transfusion, red blood cells, at least human red blood cells, don't contain any DNA. As the cells are maturing to form grown-up red blood cells, they actually chuck out their nucleus with all the DNA in it. So the red blood cells contain only mitochondrial DNA. And so I suppose in essence, you could say, well, the, the person has some of the donor's mitochondrial DNA, but they won't have their genetic fingerprint. So if you just give red blood cells, then you wouldn't see any donor DNA there. If there were white blood cells in there, transiently, you would see some of the donor. Where you do see uh, the person taking on the characteristics of a donor is if you do a bone marrow transplant. Some of our hematology patients who develop leukemias and other blood cancers sometimes undergo a bone marrow stem cell transplant to fix their problem. And under those circumstances, what we do is get rid of the diseased bone marrow from the person with the leukemia. The bone marrow is what makes all of the cells in your blood. And then you replace it with new stem cells from someone who is genetically compatible with that recipient. And those stem cells then begin to produce the healthy bone marrow and white blood cells and red blood cells. And because they come from another individual, you will therefore have effectively what we call chimerism. You've got a, a genetic mixture. You've got blood from one person because your blood cells will have their blood group and their DNA, but the rest of your body will have your genetic fingerprint. So you're basically part passenger in your own body after that. Dr. Chris Smith, always a pleasure getting these fascinating answers from you, the Naked Scientist on 702 Afternoons.